This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden. Before we jump to the episode, I thought it was important to acknowledge the ongoing fallout from FTX's bankruptcy. It's a situation we are watching closely and something we plan to discuss in depth in the future. Having been through a long list of financial fallouts in my career, I have seen macro cycles, financial crises, and outright frauds. There's a lot to learn in these moments and after the fact. Our goal with Web3 Breakdowns has been about exploring this industry through a builder's lens. While we will always tend to favor the optimistic angle, we won't shy away from acknowledging bad actors, bad outcomes, and what we can learn from them. I hope you stick with me on this journey one episode at a time. My guest today is Nick Cannon. Nick is the head of growth at Gauntlet, a simulation and financial modeling platform for DeFi protocols. In our conversation, we break down the financial attack on Mango, how better DeFi governance mitigates risk, and why governance is a bottleneck for most protocols. Please enjoy this conversation with Nick Cannon. Nick, thank you for coming on the podcast. I'm excited to have you. Yeah, good to be here. Today is November 8th. It's probably been one of the wildest 24 hours in crypto or maybe markets in general, where FTX may have just sold itself to Binance and the market is reeling from this. And I think there's a lot of opinions flying around right now of this is a great moment for DeFi. This is a bad moment for DeFi. What's your take? This isn't necessarily DeFi. It's mostly a CeFi story. Crypto is, of course, involved. But the transparency that you see in DeFi and all these lending protocols, DEX is operating effectively as usual, except for you know FTX and Alameda pulling all their funds to put it back on their own exchange and pay out is the majority of the overlap. But DeFi is operating business as usual for the most part. So when people hear the term DeFi, it's not always clear to them what it means. There's decentralized exchanges there's decentralized borrowing programs or lending programs that kind of operate like a bank would. There's combinations. At a high level, can you help us categorize what the different sectors of DeFi are? You name the top two. The third one would probably be stablecoin protocols, which of course touch on these decentralized exchanges and lending protocols. And then the longer tail of things, here in traditional finance, options, futures exchanges, derivatives, things like that. Those will start probably in the future, flip, if traditional finance is any indication of where those go. We know the derivatives markets are way bigger in traditional finance than the exchange markets. If that's an indication, that will probably happen in the years to come for DeFi. When I think of those different categories, the notion of what DeFi is is kind of wild to me because a lot of them in traditional finance, you have human decision-making or subjective decisions. It's not all objective, this is what is okay, and this is what I think about lending money to someone. When you lend money to someone, there's a lot of decisions. I was a credit analyst. You had to decide, was this credit-worthy? How credit-worthy? Where would you lend the money? How does DeFi handle the subjective part of credit financing? Not very well. 
credit financing is difficult because DeFi doesn't know who is using their protocols largely. There are some KYC and permission protocols, but largely this is one of the hurdles of capital efficiency that traditional finance can get over. You know who your counterparty is and you can give them insurance and credit. You can really crank up that capital efficiency, which is great. On the flip side, DeFi enables a lot more composability and there's tons of opportunities. And this is why you see these protocols and new financial primitives spun up so quickly. But of course, that comes with added risk and complexity. Today, obviously, with the events, it's on my mind that crises usually come from unsecured, uncollateralized credit somewhere. Someone lent money to someone and loans get called and that's where issues come up. So it's interesting that DeFi doesn't do well on capital efficiency, which is another way to say it doesn't handle uncollateralized or subjective credit decisions well. It is a growing area, but I'm always hearing about hacks and issues. And I think the most recent one is a good place to start based on your knowledge, which was this Mango attack. Before we get into the attack, can you help people understand what is Mango? Mango describes itself as a cross-collateralized spot margin and perpetual future market. Meaning you can trade some things with leverage effectively. All right. So basically, this was an exchange where you could buy and sell instruments and you could also borrow and lend to it. That's correct. All right. So let's get into this attack because I think it was really interesting when you walked me through this of how it actually happened and the outcome. But let's go through it step by step of what happened to Mango. Not necessarily because I'm trying to pick on Mango. I just think it was a very public attack. It obviously gives lessons to other people in the space. So account A. It's initially funded by $5 million worth of USDC, which is a stablecoin, you know, one-to-one effective. They open a position to sell 483 million units of Mango Perpetual Futures at about $0.03. Cents. So this is about 3x leverage worth about $15 million. A few minutes later, Account B is again funded with $5 million of USDC stablecoin. It buys those 483 million units or $15 million or so notional that's going to float around. Shortly after the centralized spot markets, which is basically where the price feeds are read into Mango markets to adjust this derivative, start to spike. They go from $0.03 cents rising pretty quickly to $0.90. Cents. This price feed is then read into the Mango market price. And account B, which is long 483 million units of Mango, now has 423 million notional of unrealized PNO. So now they have about a half a billion in unrealized gains, effectively, per the price feed and the mango market reading. What they do with that is borrow 115 or so million of all the assets they effectively can on the entire loan book. So this includes stable coins, ETH, Solana, even the mango native token, and instantly withdraw it off the platform. And then the price subsequently collapses from 90 cents back down. And now this account B has made off with nine figures. And that unrealized PNL is massively negative. Do you have a name for this attack? Like I've heard of sandwich attacks, which is when you front run and back run a trade. What is this called? This is the mango squeeze. We've seen it used elsewhere. Mango was definitely the first, but it's an attack that can work not just on perpetual exchanges, but elsewhere. All right. So I'm going to try to play it back to you to see if I'm following along. So the same person goes to an exchange and basically is the first trade that they do is they're shorting the token. That's right. So they have $5 million. I'm going to try to keep it in US dollar terms to see if I can follow along. They short $15 million of the token. Yep. They then open up a second account and they buy $15 million from themselves. Yes. Then somehow they go to an exchange, a different place, not Mango, but a centralized exchange that's thinly traded. And then they use some more money, presumably, to drive the price up by starting to market buy the token. That's right. And then Mango 
is looking at the centralized exchange price so that the attacker knew that Mango would then see that price. Now, suddenly, their first account is worthless because they were short and the price went up. But their second account was worth, like in your estimate, 400 or $500 million. That's right. They then take that second account and say, I'll borrow 25% against this value, or like $100 million of cash. I'll take that, please, and then leave the game. Leave the game without anyone checking them out the door. Okay. As if this wasn't the craziest part, I think the reason why the mango attack will go down as famous is that the attacker, allegedly, I'm not even sure what the right words are, because a person came on Twitter, said, I did this, which was odd to me, but said, I did this. And then what happened next? Called it a profitable trading strategy. Even before they came publicly on Twitter, and they came publicly on Twitter because they were effectively doxxed through other chats and Discord channels and things like that. They made a governance proposal with some of the stolen mango token to say, Relieve me of all liability for this. This is a profitable trading strategy. Please let me go in peace effectively. This was voted down. They didn't have enough <laughs> to quorum or push it over the edge, but came out publicly, not only stating that like they did this profitable trading strategy in their terms, but there was potentially other attacks across other protocols that were at risk of a similar type of attack. And then how did the decision get made? Or was there a decision that was made to like basically settle with the attacker for some of the funds? Roughly half of it was settled. This was done through a governance proposal. We don't know what happened in conversations before that with potentially the Mango CEO or whatever, but a governance proposal did have the attacker give back roughly half of the funds to make users who had insolvencies that weren't covered by the insurance fund whole. Okay, before we introduce the insurance fund, did the attacker get to vote for himself to get his money from stealing? The attacker had the ability to vote, but didn't have enough to swing it. Wow. Okay. You just said the insurance fund. So when these DeFi protocols are set up, how is the insurance fund structured? It varies. The insurance fund effectively understands that, hey, we are a lending protocol. We're a futures exchange. We are going to allow trading and positions to be held and basically liabilities against our protocol. How should we back up and make our users whole should a tail or realization event or exploit happen? These insurance funds are largely denominated with the native governance token, in this case, Mango. This is usually set and pretty much fixed sort of at the outset. There's a number of reasons why this is the case. One, because it's tough to decentralize and actively manage an insurance fund, right? Who's going to do this in a decentralized open way? Getting consensus through governance forums and proposals is hard. This isn't just a CFO and a board sort of checking the box saying, like, balance it like this. We understand our liabilities and having some derivatives. I guess on points of derivatives, there's not many derivatives that a Mango or a lending protocol could buy on-chain and actively manage their book. And this creates sort of a problem when you see exploits like this. So the insurance fund was how much in dollar terms? About $50 million. But it was in the native token. So did it suddenly spike up in value and then get destroyed? That is correct. Okay. So when they settled, was the $50 million what was left over? Were the people who deposited money in Mango able to be paid back from the insurance fund or did they take a loss? They initially took a loss and that's why a deal was made with this exploiter to sure up the remainder. Got it. And so the final outcome was if you had deposited money on Mango, did you get 90 cents on the dollar, 30 cents? Like what did you get back? As far as I can tell, you were made whole. Okay. That's wild. Before we get to like what this means for the industry and where it could go, I'm just curious, when Mango started, How does it work? Like, how do they bootstrap people coming over there in the first place? People write a bunch of code and they get together. But why would someone trade on an exchange? Like, how do they get through the cold start problem of you should come trade over here? 
We see this pattern in a lot of places, not just Mango and others. When you're launching a token or a native governance token, you can lower the capital requirements to bootstrap the protocol, right? So traders, market makers, even retail users don't want to use their stable coins or their blue chip, quote unquote, tokens, their ETH, their Bitcoin, et cetera, to use as collateral. Hey, you can use the Mango governance token. It has very low capital requirements and you can receive a similar leverage to these other blue chips. That's a great way to bootstrap and sort of get that flywheel moving when there starts to be six, seven, eight, nine, ten figures of liabilities and risk in the protocol without the liquidity for that governance token catching up. You're in a bit of a predicament. And so just saying it back to you that an exchange gets started. They know that the way to attract traders is to give them liquidity through margin accounts or leverage or to get people on their exchange. So they allow for a greater amount of leverage in the early days to get the trading going and then hopefully before something bad happens with that amount of leverage, kind of turn it down. In theory, but there's this nasty temptation, right? Like, hey, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And why should we tune it down now that we're seeing so much traction? The risk manager is never the most popular one in the community or in the form or in the protocol. And that's the case in traditional finance and DeFi. Yeah. The risk and compliance people are not the ones that usually make people happy when they come around the trading desks. No, their birthday parties are very lonely. Yeah. (laughs) So let's talk about working at Gauntlet then. I think there's probably a good spot to introduce. What is Gauntlet? Where do you work? What do you guys do? Gauntlet is a simulation and financial modeling platform for native DeFi protocols and DAOs. The flagship product, as mentioned, is risk management, where we run agent-based simulations off-chain to inform protocol governance on-chain. Everyone knows about or potentially know about the expenses of running things on blockchains and gas and fees like that. Our cloud costs, you know, running these simulations off-chain are quite expensive. So no motivation to do on-chain just yet until that improves. But we're able to simulate in a similar way the agents, the borrowers, the lenders, the liquidators, the participants of these protocols and make sure we're tuning risk parameters and capital efficiency that makes sense for a protocol and community sort of appetite as it evolves. So I think before I go further, just for the audience to give us some context, when we first started chatting and you were teaching me about this mango attack, which I was fascinated by, I just assumed you guys were like, oh, like this is what happens when you don't hire a gauntlet. But that's not what you were trying to say. What is your view of things like these mango attacks or just DeFi attacks in general? I don't particularly care if code is law or what the theory or cross jurisdictions or how that works. I care if this sector grows or not. And if we think an attack like Mango will happen for the next month, for the next couple of years, I don't imagine a world where crypto grows to the scale I'd like to see it. This is why I think awareness just generally about not a specific risk parameter or how to launch a protocol or bootstrap capital requirements or think about capital requirements, just how to think about your users more broadly, which are all early adopters into these ecosystems. It doesn't really matter if it's a trillion dollar or hundred billion dollar market. It's still very early and it can be much bigger. And we just have to make sure we do it right. Gollum's got an interesting background. You guys publish a lot of research. You almost look like an academic shop based on how much publishing you all do. What's kind of the structure of how Gauntlet came to being in this space? Tarun and Ray both come from traditional finance, Tarun from DE Shaw. Ray has done a few stints at trading desks. And then I guess most analogous to what Gauntlet does is Ray did a stint at Uber on the marketplace team. So everyone understands Uber, there's drivers and there's passengers. Drivers are trying to make a good living, presumably, and get to their routes quickly. Passengers are trying to pay as little as possible to get to where they're going. How do you optimize that dynamically for a market to make sure it grows? This is sort of what we do for Gauntlet and different at Gauntlet for different protocols that are trying to optimize different things. So that background of one Uber and then also informing different agent-based simulation in traditional finance 
informs like a lot of how we built our platform to sort of work in DeFi. One thing that I think is challenging for people when they're not in DeFi is approaching it can feel a bit overwhelming. Like, do I need to have the mathematical training of Gauntlet to know if this is a safe or not safe protocol? How do you think about safety in this space as early adopters try to experiment? I think it's important. I sort of want it to be more boring, to be honest. I want DeFi to be as boring as email or something like that. Email is a protocol. Does anyone know it's a protocol or how many people know it's a protocol? Hopefully not many. And hopefully not too many people care about their money market account with Vanguard, but they care about it in DeFi. I want them to experiment and understand the general risk, but they don't need to be quants or math majors to understand what they're doing day in and day out. That's sort of the goal. So we try to balance that with academic level research that for the most part doesn't tie directly to the product suite. We're exploring patterns and attacks that could be new primitives in DeFi for composing across different protocols and asset classes and things like that. We build better products to drive more impact and like risk adjusted returns and capital efficiency for you know those top sectors and categories that we mentioned, and then inform people that want to use these things. It's interesting to think about money markets and email as examples, because I feel like people weren't worried about money markets until the crash happened. And then in 08, people were really worried. Email is an interesting one where you're right that people don't worry about how it works, but almost all the traditional frauds that happen in finance are like phishing or, you know, it's a kind of an attack vector. And so maybe risk is like a lot of things, you can't get rid of it, but you can minimize it. So how do you work with protocols to help them with that? This is probably the biggest innovation, or at least on my side and the growth side of things, separate to all the research, is the model has been called more recently B2DAO. The DAOs or the protocols are decentralized autonomous organizations that are open with their treasuries and their functions out and communicated in different community forums and channels. We go to these communities that we think we can drive some impact to or think our risk management models sort of apply very well to and provide them with a service agreement. These are terms and conditions, scope of engagements. These are the parameters we'll touch. This is how much it will cost. And then it goes to vote. Again, very out in the open. I want to come back to the hack and how it could be bigger, but let's just stay on this topic of risk management. When I think of risk management, it's not a game you can win. It's a game you try to lose as little as possible at. The risk manager rarely gets the accolades. Thank you for protecting us from this bad thing that happened, even though it's critical to worry about all the bad things that could happen. It's usually the person who overruns the risk manager that blows someone up. The person who says, you probably shouldn't lend that thing, and then you do, and it goes bad, and then there's a lot of revisionist history. So putting yourself square, not only risk management for one protocol, but risk management for lots of protocols, seems to be a thankless or dangerous job. Am I thinking about that the wrong way? (laughs) It's definitely largely thankless. And for better or worse, the scope keeps expanding. I think it's pretty clear we don't touch like smart contract or audit risk. There's smart contract auditors and everyone understands their role there. We try to hone in on market risk specifically, but then there's Oracle risk, which a little touched on the mango attack and governance risk as well. And that scope, generally people look to Gauntlet for you know touching on that because no one wants to be on the hook for these communities and what is now like a large amount of money at play. It is definitely thankless. There are some faster paths to governance of guardians with admin permissions. But again, the incentive there isn't perfectly aligned. Do they want to be the person who passes markets where capital can flee so quickly to their competitor? And do they want to be blamed for it if nothing comes of it? They're in a bad spot as well. How do you think about alignment in that case? Because if some people got together and they're working on a protocol and it's run by a DAO and it's going well, and then there was a vote to have this outside risk manager, it's hard enough for a risk manager that's part of the team to have oversight and steer risk. How does it feel when you're a third party that's on a contract? 
stuff, but everyone's becoming a third party. Even these core teams have built the protocols. So we've seen this already where core teams decentralize to a DAO and then their ongoing contracts or their future contracts are then voted on by that DAO to keep them on. Now, hey, you probably want the CTO that built the protocol to stay on and continue to work. That's generally going to be good. But they are in a similar bucket to Gauntlet and others that come in after the fact to say, hey, we have something that we can help out the protocol and build towards a future that realistically is always changing. The underlying is changing, the protocols are changing, and there's new risks, new assets, new primitives, things like that. When you guys talk about simulation, that you're helping these protocols simulate risks of actors and how they might interact, is a good mental model like simulating a hurricane path going after like Florida? And saying, like, the odds of getting hit are this. We've run all these models. And so this is it, or is that the wrong way to think about it? I think that's pretty close, right? Like, in isolation, you can say this exact asset is going to do this. We understand the liquidity of this asset, the slippage of this asset, the volatility of this asset. But in Mango's case and many others, where there's cross margining and you could use one asset to borrow against another, it starts to get extremely complicated. And this is what algo trading does. And sort of all battle-tested techniques from traditional finance run simulation because it's not always explainable of what those outputs might be. I guess I'm trying to understand. I give someone a bunch of simulations and I say there's a 1% chance that your whole thing could go down if this malicious actor shows up and borrows enough money. What then is the response or the takeaway for the DAO to do to try to either lower that risk or do they accept that? Some do, some don't. You can imagine a lot more change their risk appetite after seeing something like Mango. There's always been sort of a state-level actor that could push the prices in some of these cases across various protocols for whatever reason. If someone wants to come with a billion dollars on a very illiquid token, you can do something like the Mango Squeeze attack pretty consistently across a number of them. Now, I think this is forcing like a lot of awareness and like new deployments and migrations for parameters that can help mitigate things, supply caps, limit positioning, better insurance funds and mechanisms around that. So if awareness comes from mango squeeze attacks, then hopefully that advances the progression of if it's not broke, don't fix it. And people should understand that like some things are broke. And if they're not broke, they could blow up pretty quickly. Let's go back to the tail on the mango attack because after it happened and after it was labeled a profitable trading strategy and there was a settlement, which I'm not sure what that means for future repercussions of it. But then the same person who perpetrated it, I feel like alluded to on Twitter, like this could be done in a lot of places that people think are safe, like larger DeFi protocols that have been established. And so can the mango squeeze be done anywhere if you just have enough money? It can be done in a lot of places if you have enough money. It can't be done if you can prevent cross-margining, if you have supply caps or position limit caps on these smaller liquid assets that track how much liquidity they have that's basically safe to apply. All these protocols want to move quickly, right? New projects, new assets are being spun up all the time, and they want to make sure they're capturing this. This was largely a lot of FTX's value prop. They were able to bring on new assets extremely quickly, and they claimed their risk engine could calibrate that to make sure it was safe for their users and help them grow. As long as there's mechanisms there to do so, you can mitigate a lot of that. But again, there's always tail risk. Let's walk through the two things you've mentioned, supply caps and limit positioning. Take it one by one. What is a supply cap and how does it work? The supply cap in a lending protocol says, hey, this is a new illiquid token. It's interesting. It seems like there's a community building around it. There's a nice novel use case, or maybe it's a DEX or a lending protocol, but there's not a lot of liquidity. And this sort of depends on the tolerance of the protocol. But let's make sure people can't borrow or supply, for that matter, more than, say, $10 million notional at any given time. 
This prevents the case where you see with Mango, where they ran up a half a billion dollars in unrealized positions. You don't want that to happen. And so in that case, would the supply cap have stopped the short side of the trade or would it have stopped the ability to take a loan against the long side of the trade? The short side, initially. Okay. So it wouldn't let you do that. And then what is position limiting? Position limiting or like preventing cross-margining, where in Mango's case, why were they able to borrow against that unrealized P&L, everything else? If you want to borrow against Mango or deleverage yourself, great. But you shouldn't be able to touch everything else on the platform. Got it. So you have these ideas of how to make the space safer. Let's walk through how you actually get that deployed through governance. Before the Mango squeeze happened, let's just say a different DeFi protocol hired you and you looked at it and you said, here are some of our recommendations that you should implement in your protocol. How do you actually go about implementing it? Fortunately, we largely don't have to. You know, we're not the only participant in these DAOs. These development teams and, for example, V3 and Compound V3 have these mechanisms and parameters built into them. I think what's helping accelerate that migration and those deployments and upgrades there is something like Mango. We're always going to help parameterize those supply caps, right? We have a new parameter we need to simulate and make sure we understand that what each of these, I think, on roughly 40 assets can support and what they should be to make it make sense for the users they're trying to attract. But how can we get off E2 quickly and how can we safely migrate those users and those positions in a timely manner? Is Gala actually running like dynamic with an API and changing supply caps on like an ongoing basis, not just saying, hey, we're your risk management team, we're going to come in and give you guys some tools of how to build it? It's 100% dynamic. It's largely throttled by governance. So, so, you know, something we want to push on a lot of these protocols is faster pass for governance. Traditional finance has a lot of different circuit breakers, sometimes literally a red button in the room, but APIs that can effectively turn off positions or deleverage positions quickly. Decentralized consensus is tough, and governance is generally slow. In most of these protocols, it will take anywhere from three to seven days to have a proposal be put up for vote, and then voted on, and then queued, and then executed. It does change immediately, but you do have that period window you have to wait to do so. And how hard is it to get consensus of voting? I know that most recently we had Jared on from Sushi, and he was talking about the lack of participation in voting. How does it work when you're getting into risk management? I can't imagine that's going to get a lot of people excited to vote. It's almost less consensus, but quorum, right? People don't really turn up. If there's voter apathy for everything else, you can imagine voter apathy for tuning risk parameters a few percent is is about as low as you could potentially go. So it is tough. And it's lobbying for a unanimous vote, which is never easy. You never know who the stakeholders are, and they're not going to be reading the forums all the time. And it's always on for us, but not always on for the voters, unfortunately. Can you give an example of how you guys think about fine-tuning, making this governance decision, trying to make it more qualitative? If I'm a protocol, how do you guys make a pitch to help them fine-tune their risk parameters? It usually depends on their mechanism design. So like, we turn down roughly 80 to 90% of projects that come to us. A, we have limited resources. We want to be super selective, but we also want to have skin in the game. We think there's a lot of upside to the market we're building in, and it's extremely early. So we're, for the most part, paid in native governance token ourselves. So we want to make sure we're building the one component or working on the core competency that we have in market risk and simulation on a protocol that we think is going to grow and the governance and the value of their token is going to go up. Again, not altruistic. It's, it's good for us as far as a P&L and a revenue perspective. If the mechanisms and the smart contracts as they're designed lend themselves well and cleanly to simulation, then we target those projects understand stakeholder needs, and go directly to the community. You can see service agreements, for better or worse, out in the open, pricing models, all that. 
it's interesting because I was going to ask you about alignment. So holding the native token is a good way to align your interests. Do you guys have like a liability or are you held accountable if something bad happens? We've tried to make it not directly from the DAO, but we try to put more skin in the game ourselves. More recently, we've spun up something we're calling insolvency refund. So if you think of how normal like cloud computing services work with AWS or something, they sign a service agreement that says, hey, if we have an outage, we were going to pay a penalty against your fee or discount it in some way, shape, or form. We sort of want to do this the same way. So for a lot of our biggest contracts, we take 30% of our payment, put it in a vault, stick it there, and say, if any of Gauntlet's risk parameter recommendations caused insolvencies or user losses, we're going to give that right back to you. We want to like give ourselves the incentive and test ourselves in production to say we have alignment. Even though you can't always see what we're simulating, you sort of have to trust us a little bit. We try to open source as much data as possible and have risk dashboards. We also want to make it abundantly clear that our skin is in the game. For context, what were you doing before you joined Gauntlet? I played poker for about a decade. Had another DeFi startup, FinTech startup before this as well. But yeah, knew I was going to end back you know, closer to the metal in crypto as much as possible. I was just trying to compare how much risk and pressure there is building in this way, having an open protocol that's running that can be hacked at any minute. There might be another attack vector and trying to be in charge of risk management just seems like a really tall order. Maybe I'm suited for it a little bit. I mean, in poker, similar to crypto, the only rule really is to survive. You're going to have winning days, losing days. In poker, you're going to have to move down in stakes, even though maybe you played that same stake for years on end, right? But bankroll management is key and similar for risk management. Like going to zero is not good. And if everyone's betting and building in a sector that they think is going to grow by orders of magnitude, all you have to do is fade going to zero, especially in fair cycles like the one we're in now. Zooming out a little bit, how do we get this growth that you're so excited about? Two ways to ask that question. One is, how do we get there in a positive way? And what are you most concerned of that will stifle that growth? I think we all have to get on the same page. It's not health only. There are risk-off environments. Sometimes we're in them quickly, and that turns on a dime. And understanding that risk management helps you achieve that is pretty important. It doesn't have to be a revenue driver. We're still in a growth mode and figuring it out. You know, ETH merges, bridges, layer twos, things like that make all these things more complicated. Moving quick is not always the right answer. I think the adoption will be delayed if governance and these teams building these protocols don't act in the best interest of their users very clearly. They design protocols and move too quickly with too much money at stake and people get hurt. It's sort of simple as that. We're not talking hundreds or thousands of dollars. We're talking hundreds of millions. That is tough to sweep under the rug and you shouldn't sweep that under the rug. And that can definitely delay adoption. I know we won't get too far into the weeds on regulation, but I just have to ask, do you think that the space can self-govern in a way to achieve those goals, or it's just a necessity that there will be further regulation on the space? I'm quite optimistic it can self-govern. My biggest concern, watching static governance and how we participate in it and trying to hit quorum for risk parameters and things like that over the course of mostly last year has started to like show some light where... There's more teams building in this stack, this DAO stack, working for these protocols that are active and like this is their full-time gig and they're trying to move this forward. We can coordinate both publicly and privately to make sure we're moving these protocols forward. I want to move to a different topic you had taught me about that I thought was fascinating, which is after the ETH merge, there's always been proof of stake, but obviously when the merge happened, that brought the topic more front and center for people. What fascinated me about proof of stake away from the security concerns, which we're going to get to, was this notion that you could have a network and that by providing tokens to it, by staking, you could generate yield and create this fixed income-like structure. But you and the team at Gauntlet have pointed out that as the yields rise away from staking, so if you got paid 
I'm going to make up numbers, 5% to stake your tokens, and someone offers you 7% an interest to go lend your tokens, that suddenly you're likely to take your tokens off the network and maybe decrease security to lend them somewhere else. Can you talk about how this mechanism happens and how you guys think about incentive optimization? That's sort of on the macro or the layer one Ethereum level scale, which I think is super interesting and a bit more theoretical. More practically, we see it on the protocol scale today, where there's what they're called liquid staking derivatives of staked ETH. So you basically can have a staked Ether asset where you're earning this yield, but it's now in this protocol, very often recursively borrowed against Ether to then be staked again. These feedback loops are largely misunderstood. The proposals you see go through governance usually say, hey, if we increase a collateral factor or change an interest rate curve, we can get better yield for our assets, attract more capital, pull it from XYZ protocols, this protocol. On the surface, that's true. But underlying is how are you bearing and adding more complexity and risk into the protocol by doing so? Are you adding risk to the system or the ecosystem as a whole to DPEG or see a drawdown? While a lot of these liquid staking derivatives like staked ETH aren't quote-unquote pegged or either, they are trying to track them, right? They are a derivative that is trying to earn that yield and give liquidity to the users that are tracking it. And if there is a large drawdown, which we've seen historically happen, cascading liquidations can happen in these multi-billion dollar protocols, which is going to be bad. And we try to mitigate that as much as possible. Talk about the whole idea of these liquid staking things. When I first started to learn about them, I was struck by this, and it's interesting from your seat in risk management that what people are essentially doing is if you stake ETH right now, you can't get it back. And so what people could do is instead of staking ETH on a validator, I want to go give it to this provider. They're staking your ETH, basically making it illiquid and then offering you liquidity. But use the word mitigate. To me, is that business model just necessarily flawed that if there was ever a run on that liquidity, that business model would just inherently break? There is if no one's tuning these collateral requirements, which is very often the case. If governance is static and no one is monitoring this, then you're in a bad spot. You should either be extremely conservative and not touch it. And if there's recursive borrowing or whatever, you know there's, say, billions of dollars in decentralized exchanges to pull that out. And the liquidators, should a drawdown from par occur, they'll be able to stir up the protocol and prevent insolvencies. But that's not usually the case for the motivation for this initial asset listing, right? It's to gain more capital efficiency. I want to just dive into that a little bit more. In my simple example, I give 1,000 ETH, and then the liquid staking protocol stakes that ETH across validators, and then they give me 1,000 of their staked ETH token. I'm the only customer. How could the risk parameters prevent me from just calling up one day and being like, I'd like my money back? As you mentioned, you can't unstake that, right? Currently, that's the case in what Lido and others do is incentivize that liquidity and pool pair on decentralized exchanges. So there's state ETH and the second asset is ETH. And if you wanted to exit that position, you would trade out of it, right? You can't unstake it, but you can trade out of it. What lending protocols have done recently is allow you to list staked ETH as a collateral asset and then borrow. And what people are largely doing is borrowing ETH, taking more ETH, now staking that redepositing and borrowing more ETH, so you're making this recursive loop, right? So you're now earning significantly more than your, say, a few percent on your initial stake because you're borrowing and lending. And in theory, if those are always one-to-one, you're making more yield than you would have of the capital you own. So that made it even more risky, in my opinion. I guess I'm trying to understand the unwind. So when people unwind the recursive borrowing, if everyone went back to that stake ETH provider, to me, it just seems like There's no risk management parameter. You can try to balance it as much as you want. But if for whatever reason, everybody wanted their money back, 
the money's not there. It's kind of like, I think it's a wonderful life or something where they have a run in the bank and they're like, look, it's in John's house and Sally's house. They don't understand that the deposits turn into mortgages. If you take ETH, and then I know this was what we were meant to talk about, but I'm excited to learn more on it. And you stake it in something you can't get your money back out of. There is no real risk parameter that if there was a run on that protocol that could stop it, is there? Or am I misunderstanding it? You're correct. And the way to, in theory, attract capital with the knowledge or giving your users the knowledge of like, hey, maybe I want to pull this capital out before I'm allowed to withdraw is to incentivize the liquid pair of safe ETH and ETH on various decentralized exchanges. Got it. So as long as those two stay close enough pegged to each other, people feel comfortable that they don't need to go back and say, give me all my money back. That's right. And that's where the risk management parameters come in. Of If you can manage that as efficiently as possible, you can try to keep it in line to a point. This is where you can't prevent all types of risk, but you can mitigate or minimize it by trying to keep those pairs aligned as best as possible. And they're aligned by incentivizing liquidity, right? So these staking protocols who are allowing you to stake are deploying their governance token to say, hey, we're throwing a lot of capital at this. There's a higher APY to be a liquidity provider in these pools. Please keep your capital there. That makes sense. We brought up Sushi earlier. That seems to be an exchange. I think if we have our numbers right, they've implemented 612 recommendations from Gauntlet across multiple pools, which is pretty wild to see like your impact. How do you have such a huge impact on something like a Sushi? About a year and a half ago, Sushi saw initial success after launching and pulling a lot of the capital primarily from Uniswap. And they were spinning up new pools and bootstrapping new pools like wildfire, really. And they're spending a lot of money to do so. They sort of knew, at least in broad strokes, they were spending way too much. You don't really have a lot of data on this. Hey, there's new tokens all the time. We want to bootstrap liquidity, but really feels like we're overspending. The long and the short of it was they definitely were. Saved them hundreds of millions of dollars in doing so, mainly by primarily these onsen pools, telling you to sort of understand the elasticity of your liquidity providers. How Sushi and these automated market makers largely work is there's a pair of assets, say an Ether and a stable coin. And the people providing this liquidity put one-to-one notional value. So if Ether is worth $1,000, they would put one Ether and $1,000 worth of a stable coin into a pool and have a share. And they have the ability to earn fees. Sushi and many other decentralized exchanges are incentivizing this with their governance token. So you keep your liquidity there. What you want to know is how can you make sure these liquidity providers keep their funds there and are incentivized enough to do so as in not pull them out or trade them somewhere else or use a lending exchange and make sure that you are optimizing trades towards your exchange. For the most part, automated market makers attract arbitrage. And this is for tracks against a lot of centralized exchanges and then, of course, native decentralized exchanges. What people generally don't think about when they're optimizing incentives is the elasticity of these liquidity providers. If you say lower the incentive you're giving them by 10%, are they likely to leave? Are they static? Are they indifferent? Are they just long these two tokens and want to stay there regardless? This is something we analyzed and then pushed week over week parameters to a variety of pools for Sushi over the course of a year and change. I'm just thinking about the data you guys are sitting on. To be able to do this analysis, you probably have really strong market views. Do you guys just play in the risk management space or do you guys use this for other activities like your own trading or selling information to other market makers? Neither. We're sort of all in on DeFi and DAOs. All the quants that come from a trading background want to do that. And we say, hey, we can make a quick buck doing this. Our CEO has got their heads back to the grindstone and building something a bit bigger. Yeah, that's awesome. Nick, it's always fun to talk to you. And we'd like to end these with the same closing questions. What are you most excited to see built over the next six months? And what are you most excited over the next six years? 
I think what I'm excited to see built, and it's not just one thing, is this B2DAO service layer stack where we're seeing core teams decentralized to a community and then different layers of the service stack being built out. Obviously, we're part of that, but we don't want to be all of it and we need some help. And we're excited that more people are starting to participate. More people, more companies, there's more funding and grants and things like that. These treasuries are starting to be deployed, understanding, hey, there's ongoing development needs. We shipped a few good things, but we can do a lot better. In six years' time, a lot of these primitives that we're uncovering really are nowhere close to our product suite, but would love to see a lot of them built. I think the transparency and composability of the space we're building in is going to lead to some very interesting opportunities, cutting out a lot of middleman bureaucracy. And like from what we're seeing today in centralized exchanges, a lot of this probably doesn't need to happen. You don't need to do proof of reserves in DeFi. All the reserves are on chain. And every analytic shop to trading desk or simulation engine can pull these pretty much in real time. And more of the capital and crypto assets should be on-chain, traded on-chain, lent on-chain, and used on-chain. Nick, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 